0: Mississippi, like much of the southern United States, was once solidly Democrat. Indeed, Mississippi, within living memory, hadn't elected a statewide Republican since the Civil War. This started to change, and it changed quite dramatically. And someone who's witnessed this transformation, indeed who's been part of this transformation, joins me now, Jim Herring. Jim, thank you for coming in. Thank you, Douglas. Now, you've written a book about... Not only your journey from the Democrats to the Republicans, but it's rather appropriately named The Switcher. And it's part memoir, part first hand account of these uh, events. That's right. Tell us a bit about the book and why you've written it. Well, I wrote the book.
1: Of uh, course, I served as party chairman for seven to eight years from 2001 to 2008. And uh, based on what I know about what happened. Within the bottom Mississippi Republican Party prior to that time. Although there had been great progress towards uh, the realization of a two party system in Mississippi, it really came into full flower, as I like to call it, during the 2001 to 2008 period. Mm-hmm. And so I witnessed it when the, the party prior to that time had elected a governor one time and uh, senators and congressmen, but most of the uh, state courthouse, all 82 counties were dominated by Democrats mm-hmm. all across the state, in all county offices, in most statewide offices. In 2001, Phil Brock was our state auditor. He was the only Republican statewide official at that time. Mm-hmm. And so during that 2001 to 2008 period, uh, we came from 86 Democrats in the House of Representatives that were Democrats to 26 Republicans. To where during that period we uh, acquired a majority of Republicans in the House of Representatives, in the Senate, for the first time since 1877, which is historic. And then we uh, made great progress in the House of Representatives and by 2011, while Republicans had actually uh, gained a majority of the seats in the House of Representatives as well, and elected a governor, and had elected five or six of the statewide offices, all basically during that period of time, the first decade of the uh, new millennium. That's quite an achievement, but it's a very, very recent. Well, that's right. And uh, what happened during that period, although there had been great progress from when Ward Yerger was the founder of the modern party in the 1950s and 1960, there about, yeah, 1950, 1960. Uh, The progress had been slow, but what we did during our tenure was to focus on the legislature. I had observed that although you might elect a governor in Mississippi under the constitution, the governor's powers were very weak. And so when Fordyce was elected governor in the 1990s, the legislature was dominated by Democrats. Mm -hmm. And so he couldn't get anything passed. And if he would veto something that he felt like was uh, uh, not to his liking or too liberal, Mm -hmm. why they could override his veto. Mm -hmm. And it was a personal thing between Democrats and Republicans. So I determined that we should focus on trying to Enlarge our numbers in the legislative branch. Uh, in years past, for the first 50, from 1950 to 2000, while uh, traditionally a, a governor would be elected, he might have one year as a honeymoon period where the legislature would go along with something he might have said in his mm-hmm. campaign. But after that, the legislature would exert their will, and it would become an issue in the newspapers and everybody would talk about which branch is the most powerful, the executive branch or the legislative branch. You had scholars saying we needed to have a constitutional convention Mm -hmm. and give the governor more power. Well, he did get the power to succeed himself. That did pass finally. But uh, once we saw, once we were able to create a support group for our governor in the legislature just as they have in Congress why the governor we didn't need to have any constitutional convention to give the governor more Mm -hmm. power he had his support group when Hayley Barber got elected he had a a real strong support group in both the house and the Mm -hmm. senate to help him either sustain his vetoes or to operate with the group going forward and pick off Democrats to uh, to pass this legislation so Mississippi became like uh, the Congress more and more during that period from 2001 to 2008 they began to uh, establish a majority leader, minority leader Mm -hmm. we had the state party headquarters a block from the capitol, a block from the legislature We'd bring all these people into the state party headquarters and
0: we focused on the legislature during that period of time and it paid off. Now it's it's difficult to remember this now, but there was a time when the Mississippi and the South was solidly Democrat and to vote meant to vote Democrat. Why was that? Why was it so? Why why was it for the benefit of viewers so obvious that people would only ever vote Democrat? Well, scholars say, you know,
1: that. uh, after the Civil War uh, during and in the first half of the 20th century uh, which would have been only 40-50 years after the Civil War ended in 1865 while the Republicans were in charge nationally and Lincoln freed the slaves and uh, the uh, white population during Reconstruction in the very dark days after uh, 1865 and Ulysses S. Grant, president, uh, uh, those are dark days and the white population in the south attempted to restore uh, their dominance mm-hmm. in southern states after the Civil War. So a lot of the white people went to the Democratic Party.
0: And. Being a Democrat became synonymous with this idea of Southern identity. And that's what I was born
1: into, when uh, I was born in 1938, yeah. <laughs> and when I ran for uh, the county prosecutor in uh, Madison County, Mississippi, when I came back from the Army in uh, 1966, and as district attorney by, uh, you know, most everybody in all 82 counties uh, ran as Democrats. I remember very well Haley Barber, who was executive director for Clark Reed in the 1960s, as the Republican party was getting started. Haley came to be when I was a district attorney and wanted me to change parties. And at that time, I never had attended any kind of party meeting, either Democrat or Republican. really, There was no issue. Everybody just, it was one party study. Mm -hmm. And,
0: and uh, so, anyway, that's what we... had when I came along. And you went from being a member of the Mississippi Democrat Executive Committee. I think you're the only member of the Mississippi Democrat Executive Committee who ended up being Republican Party Mr. Chairman. Yeah, that's historically correct.
1: <laughs> that was later, because I ran for governor in 1979 as a Democrat and uh, I had been a district attorney and there were some earlier races which set out in the book but in making that race for governor and going around the state and seeking votes in the democratic party and by that time republicans were growing they had elected Trent Lott to the congress and Thad Cochran to the congress so you had two republicans all of a sudden in the uh, national congress and they were beginning to make moves but as far as Uh, you know, it was still a one-party system by and large, almost exclusively. And so, uh, in making that race for governor in 1979 against William Winter, and against Evelyn Gandy and John Arthur Eve Sr., now deceased, my old classmate and a few others, it became obvious to me that at that time you had the Freedom Democrats, which was Aaron Henry and the civil rights leaders, and then you had the Regulars or the Mississippi Democrats, predominantly white. Uh, Tom Riddell Jr., incidentally from Canton, Mississippi, was chairman of the Regular Democrats or the Mississippi Democrats, you call them. And uh, Governor Cliff Finch had. <coughs> under the instructions of the National Democratic Party, insisted that these two groups merge. Mm-hmm. And so there was a determined effort. It was not a, a merger, it was a merger like a shotgun wedding, i sorts. that. And so the uh, <laughs> so east side was concerned about uh, preserving their power base. And it became obvious to me that uh, Unless the governor in 1979, that would have been William Winner, uh, exerted strong leadership that we were going to lose a lot of uh, the traditional, more or less conservative type Democrats, not just not just on race issues, but on economic issues and issues that uh, you and I today would probably be in favor of. You're going to lose them. Because the Republicans were beginning to organize and grow, and I had a meeting with William in the mansion, the governor's mansion. He had defeated me in that gubernatorial election, and I we had that conversation. And I told him, I said, William, you're about to elect a new state, Republican Democratic executive committee, the governing body of the party. If that those two groups can't get together and work together, so that everybody. Uh, have some piece of the pie, and can uh, exert some leadership and have some power base, you're going to lose a lot of Democrats mm-hmm. in the years
0: ahead, and I would like to help you avoid that. Was there a moment that you can remember where you thought, I'm in the wrong party? Was there a eureka moment, or was it a gradual process? When I changed, when I needed to
1: change? Yeah. Well, I was making every effort in 1979 not to have to do that, Mm -hmm. that's my point. Mm -hmm. I wanted to help William maintain an effective control of the Democratic Party and for the Democratic Party, which I had grown up in, uh, to uh, remain in control. And I had concerns and said, if you don't do certain things, if you don't let everybody have a piece of the pie, you're going to lose a lot. So I bucked him in the sense it was very presumptuous. I told him that even though the governor is supposed to have complete control over the new Democratic Executive Committee every four years, I said, I'm going to go through the precinct process and try to elect some people that I think would be helpful in doing what I think needs to be done to preserve the party Mm -hmm. in power. So I did, I got elected myself and been elected about 30% of the Democratic Committee. But after a period of five or six meetings, which met every quarter, it became obvious to me that it wasn't going to work. Mm -hmm. Uh, In other words, I was a Democrat that was attracted when John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy said, with famous words, Uh, My fellow Americans ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Mm -hmm. Or I was attracted to Franklin Roosevelt who said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. That was Mm -hmm. during the depression. I found in serving on that committee that none of that made any difference. Nobody paid any attention to those old Mm -hmm. uh, quaint sayings. It's all about what could I get and how much can I get, and in the
0: ends justify the means. Is interesting that because when, for example, Jimmy Carter mm-hmm. won in the seventies, that's right. A lot of the people who would have voted for him, staunch Democrats, would have had a very strong faith in in faith, right, in flag, in free markets, and right. family, absolutely. Even when Bill Clinton was elected, there were a lot of Southern Democrats who were deeply socially conservative, economically conservative. It tells you how the Democrats have changed. That people oh, like it's that totally changed. Yeah. This idea of John
1: Kennedy saying, ask not what your country can do for you, but what can you do for uh, what can you do for your country? you you never hear any of that again it's as if Today never, i never said yeah i mean was, yeah. so consequently after a period of months i just quietly uh resigned from the party i didn't hold any press conference i just uh, quietly res, uh resigned from the state executive committee and ultimately wound up uh attending republican How big a pull was Reagan to you and others who made the same journey? Well Reagan made all the difference. In my book you will notice that uh, when I said that I uh, came to the conclusion without doubt that this should be my new home and my permanent home was the big event that occurred on the Mississippi Gulf Coast uh, when Reagan was running for his second term in 1984 or thereabouts. And when he uh, (coughs) was talking about mourning in America. Yeah. A shining city on the hill. Yeah. Uh, America's best days are ahead of us. Um, and so I was on the organizing committee for that event on the Mississippi Gulf Coast when thirty or 40,000 people showed up on the beaches and he was facing the water. They were, Their backs were to the water and he spoke to them. I just never have been through anything quite like that up <laughs> until that point. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then uh, we were all sitting behind Reagan up on the stage about 10 or 15 hours. There's a picture of it in the book where and I had a chance after he made his speech he came around sure and shook hands with all of us. So I said to him, God bless you, Mr. Preston." There,
0: there are a lot of photos in the book. That's one of the things. That's right. It. There are right picture pictures of, of lots and lots of occasions. Now you, you had a ringside seat to some of the epic battles in in Mississippi's history, um, Ronnie Musgrove losing to um, Haley Barber. Haley Barber. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? Um, what, what, what do you think about some of the most um, some of those those contests? Um, was that was that expected that that Barber would beat Musgrove? Uh, well, it was not
1: uh, it was not automatic. I mean, uh, Musgrove was a sitting governor; he was mm-hmm. running for a second term. Mm-hmm. He had won earlier in, in a very close election that was decided by the House of Representatives, which was majority Democrat. That's why he got elected because the vote was so close, less than one percent difference, that, that the Democrats uh, elected him and uh, by House vote. But it wasn't automatic. Haley. Uh, Took a, you know. He came down from Washington and uh, came back from Washington and announced for governor and had a primary opponent and he uh, ran a fantastic campaign and he spent and a lot of money spent on that campaign. It was highly professional, probably the most professional campaign I've ever seen run in Mississippi. And I was party chairman and sitting in the state headquarters and all that was going on. Every day it would seem there would be some widely known, very popular Republican nationally that would come down and hold a press conference almost every day mm-hmm. in the last month or so. And it was very exciting and uh, he had good debates with Musgrove and uh, he uh, he won on the issues. Mm-hmm. He won on the issues and, and basically What we began to do in the legislative races, and certainly in that race with Haley against Musgrove, well, the election was nationalized. In other words, you looked at Musgrove not as one of a a fellow Mississippians on Mississippi issues. You began to look at him, uh, well, is this good for the country Mm -hmm. for us to elect a Democratic governor, not Mm -hmm. just for Mississippi? So the race was couched on national terms, and of course on national terms, the great majority of Mississippians are conservative, and it made it easier for us to win.
0: It's not just a case, though, that Mississippi has, has changed, has switched um, the way you made the switch, from allegiance to one party to another party. M- Mississippi is, in many ways, unrecognizable to how it was 50 years ago. What do you think some of the big changes for the better have been in the state? Well, <clears throat> from
1: my vantage point, perhaps not uh, quite as evident, perhaps to somebody that didn't follow this sort of stuff every day, prior to the two-party system becoming a reality, particularly in the in the state government, the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch, uh prior to that time you see when you as i stated earlier when the legislative branch would be the dominant most powerful branch of government and the governor would be almost after the first honeymoon year honeymoon while the governor was weak and Mm -hmm. couldn't get anything passed unless he just had some kind of super personality would go around the state urging uh, on a particular issue like william Winter pushed education um but after the two-party system took place, the governor had a support group in the legislature. And uh all, instead of as was typically done, say from 1950 to 1975 or 1980, uh They'd vote, I mean, they'd argue in the legislature about who's most powerful. We're gonna teach the governor a lesson. We're gonna show him that we're more powerful than he is. Mm -hmm. Well, they might talk about racial issues until the blacks started voting in large numbers. Uh, But very seldom would there be debates on education, roads, healthcare, uh, crime. Uh, There would be no Easily discernible uh, setting, for example, as to what did the Republicans believe or what did the Democrats believe. If they were all Democrats and it was all they were all individuals. But once the two-party system took place, we focused on those issues and tried to force the candidates to set a position, a Republican position. The
0: democratic position to let the general public understand the difference between the two. So the dissolution of the one-party system created in effect more competition. Absolutely. And that has improved it public was, policy. It
1: was revolutionary and in my judgment, as I say in my introduction, one of the two great achievements or movements that occurred in the 20th century, perhaps the first 10 years of the 21st century, was the civil rights movement in the coming of the two-party
0: system. And that's elevated public policy. It means, for example, in education and healthcare, Absolutely. you're it, having the debate. It allowed a, a
1: public debate on the issues, let the public become educated as to what the issues were, and let the public
0: would decide. Mm-hmm. Up until that point, there were no debates. Do you think it's also helped politics in Mississippi be less a sort of collection of personality cults and become more competition over ideas? Absolutely. That's the huge achievement that occurred during our period. And uh, lessons, looking back, what would you say are some of the key lessons that you would draw? Well, I have a chapter towards the end of
1: my book called Lessons Learned. And, of course, that's a military term for those of us who served in the military. Quite often a commanding general or a commanding officer who had a mission to perform we have to write a, an after-action report to his commanding officer as to what went wrong, what went right, what should have happened, what needs to happen in the future. So, and they have a section of that after-action report that's called Lessons Learned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my after-action report is this book as to what happened, and then I have my lessons learned mm-hmm. in the end. I was a military man, you know, I was a jack officer. 25 years, or three years on active duty. Uh, so the lesson, I have lessons learned, and I could have had 10, but my buddy, uh, Joe Maxwell,
0: <laughs> who
1: helped me write this book, uh, urged me to cut it down a little bit. So I do have three in there. The first one is entitled, uh, the need for, for the, I'm talking to Republicans, uh, party unity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Historically, it's easy to see uh, not only why Republicans were successful in gaining numbers in the legislature and beginning to win statewide races, we were unified. Mm -hmm. The Democrats were divided between the Black Caucus and those that remained from the old Mississippi group, and they continued to fight among themselves It wasn't hard for Haley Barber to pick off a bunch of votes from from some of those conservative Mm Democrats. So, but now we run the risk, and I say this to my fellow party members, we run the risk of dividing among ourselves. If we want to win elections, we need to be unified. If you want to lose elections, uh, then you... uh, you know, Democrats may not be your main opponent. If you want to lose elections, and, and the main thing you want to do is beat somebody in the primary, uh, if you want to lose elections against the Democrats and let the Democrats begin to gain power again, then just keep fighting among yourselves. Mm-hmm. If you want to win, you need to unify. So party unity, and I say that you know, I was on the Republican National Committee, and, uh, chairman of the state chairman's organization. And we go around and we hold meetings and talks and so forth, and we have a presidential election coming up. If we want to win, then we better figure out a way to unify. If you want to lose, then keep fighting among yourself with a circular firing squad when you get in a debate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So party unity is one of my lessons learned. It's obvious that unity is necessary for victory. Um, Number two is uh, identity politics, Uh, an insidious term, a toxic term. And you see the Democrats practicing identity politics more and more. You see journalists playing into that narrative. Uh, I had an interview today when they said, uh, well, as far as the legislature in Mississippi is concerned, you've got Democrats who are mainly black, and the Republicans are mainly white. Don't you think we need to even that up a little bit so we can have a, everybody can have an equal chance? My answer to that is: is that Republicans do should not look at it in those terms. Republicans should not practice identity politics. Republicans need to. Uh, encourage as many African-Americans that believe as we do to join us openly. We need to protect them so that uh, those that call them an Uncle Tom or try to in some way uh, call them a traitor to their race, we need to help them. We need to grow our party uh, regardless of of, uh, race or identity or sexuality or whatever. And, and the subscribe to the uh, those principles that Ronald Reagan uh, told us that we should follow. If we do to, that, if we do that, we win. We don't need to practice identity politics. Or need the founders?
0: All Americans are treated equal. the founders, in an the exactly yeah. Yeah.
1: the founders, and uh, George Washington and all
0: others. <laughs> and,
1: and then the third, yep. Yeah, the third lessons learned is. Uh, the role, I I address the role of think tanks. A subject close to my heart. Such as the Mississippi Center for Public Policy, uh, which is a think tank that uh, helps. We found uh, that uh, as we began to elect more and more uh, so-called conservatives or Republicans using the label uh, to office, that sometimes lobbyists and others Would uh, get them to vote for things that were outside the conservative mainstream. (coughs) And they would adopt things that, sort of like the old days when uh, our state senators, our national senators, our congressmen, they said their main job was to uh, go to Washington and bring home the bacon. Mm -hmm. And that was their main job, Mm -hmm. was to bring home the bacon. Well, that's not. Are their main job. It should not be the main job. The main job should be to help create a society where we can, uh, through the principles of Milton Friedman, so economic uh, growth can occur mm-hmm. and uh, on its own through the free enterprise system. And the think tanks uh, play a vital role, particularly those that do not endorse candidates, uh, play a vital role in trying to make our elected officials understand what's conservative and what's liberal. And um, so consequently, I see uh, in my lessons learned, the Heritage Foundation, American Enterprise Institute, Hoover uh, Institute in California, and others, the the Manhattan Institute in New York, play a vital role in helping our elected officials, not from lobbyists trying to get them to vote for something based on some client that's paying the lobbyists to try to sway the elected official, but give them some outside uh, source that they can rely on so that they, the elected officials can, when they vote, that they
0: can vote with intelligence as to what they're voting for. Well, good. You just had a recent launch, very successful. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of people come along. How how are the book sales going? Well, they say they sold one hundred and
1: fifteen of them
0: okay. on
1: the sixth that, that afternoon, and I was, of course, very honored. And it's been a um, quite exciting, and um, we spent uh, Joe Maxwell and I spent a couple of years working on this. I would saved all my papers from. My days as chairman of the party and had them separated by year, two thousand one to two thousand eight, and of course I'd saved a lot of stuff from my previous races as a Democrat. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's been edu- uh, it's been uh, a little bit expensive, but
0: hopefully we'll break even. Well, <laughs> well congratulations on the book. Thank and, you so uh, much. Thank you for coming by. Thanks sure. for having me. Thank you. Thank you.